Welcome to Whitewater Wesleyan Community Church, where we invite you to believe in Jesus, belong to his church, and become like him. Stay tuned for this week's message. I feel a little bit like Walmart rushing us into Christmas. But uh, I, I think this year what we're going to do is we're digging through uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament. We often will tell the story from the Gospels about Jesus' birth. But uh, for this year, we're beginning in the Old Testament in the times thousands of years before Jesus was born that spoke about the coming of a Messiah. And so this morning, I'm beginning our look at that in, uh, in the book of Daniel. And understand that as these prophecies arose, uh, they didn't exactly know at the beginning what they're about, what they were pointing to. And so they were piecing together these puzzle pieces of, uh, of God talking about a rescuer who would come. And so as the prophets uh, gradually added to the picture, they, uh, they decided that they were watching and waiting for a hero, for a rescuer, for a Messiah that would come. I'm beginning to look in, uh, in Daniel chapter 7 this morning. Daniel chapter 7 and starting at verse 1. Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote the dream down, and this is what he saw. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the other. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off, and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Then I saw a second beast, and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up, devour many people. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared, and it looked like a leopard. It had four wings like bird's wings on its back, and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled what was left beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were wrenched out, roots and all, to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow, his hair like whitest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire flowed from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him, and a hundred million stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed, and its body was destroyed by fire. As the other three beasts... Their authority was taken from them, but they were allowed to live for a little while longer. As my vision continued that night, 
<clears throat> I saw someone who looked like a man coming from the clouds of heaven. <clears throat> he approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. <clears throat> he was given authority, honor, and royal power over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen, and my visions terrified me. So I approached the one standing beside the throne and asked him what it all meant. He explained it to me like this. These four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But in the end, the holy people of the Most High <coughs> will be given the kingdom, and they will rule forever and ever. So if you went back in time to any day in uh, 606 B.C., if you approached that time period and you were in ancient Israel, you could probably find a young guy named Daniel. He was a promising young man. Uh, he was strong, healthy, good-looking, smart, educated. One of those guys that everybody looks at and says, he's got a real future, this kid. That was Daniel. Daniel was one of those guys that everybody looked to for the future and said, you know, he's going to be something. But then in 605 B.C., Babylon invaded. And they took away all the promising young men like Daniel. And the idea was to, to bring them to Babylon. And uh, they weren't cruelly treated. They weren't uh, punished. They weren't tortured. But what they wanted to do is bring them to Babylon and kind of enculturate them in Babylonian culture. They wanted to make them part of the empire rather than an enemy of the empire. So their way of kind of ruling their empire was to say, we can't always leave an army everywhere we go. We're going to run out of armies. But what we can do is we can take the promising young people, the promising young men like Daniel and his friends, and we can bring them to Babylon, and, and we can kind of make them addicted to Babylonian culture. We can teach them the Babylonian ways. We can show them that our way of life and our empire is better than anything else that they'd experience at home. And then, maybe then, they could be sent home but they would be our ruling force in Israel and other places that the promising young men were taken from and sent back to so that they could rule the entire empire without having to have military force everywhere. It's kind of a brilliant plan. But for Daniel, he wakes up one year, and he's in this place that's his homeland, that he's one of the people of God, that he's, the world is his oyster, and it seems like his future is really bright. And then the next year, he's waking up, and he's in a foreign land, and he's fed foreign food, and he's, he's treated really well. He has the best, the, the, the king calls for his, his, uh, his chief of staff and says, you know, bring these young men in and pick the best ones, the brightest ones, the good-looking young guys, the guys that everybody's kind of drawn to. Bring them into my court and feed them food from my table. Like they're getting the best of the best. And that's where the story, I believe it was last week that Sandra shared about, about Daniel and uh, shake the bed and make the bed. You know, the three guys, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and, and those four, 
were part of this group of men, young men, that had all the promise. And so that was what they were doing there. They fed them food from the king's table, but Daniel and his friends said, hey, we're not supposed to eat that stuff. How about if we just eat fruit, uh, fruits and vegetables and fresh fruit? Uh, you know, we, we want to live differently. And they're like, the guy was kind of nervous. Like the chief of staff says, yeah, I'm going to be blamed if you guys don't look as strong as the other guys. And he goes, look, give us, give us a little time. Check us out after that. If we're weaker and uh, sluggish, and, and if we don't match up to the other guys, then, then we'll go ahead and eat that stuff. And then there's the story of, hit, of Daniel interpreting the king's dream about, uh, about kingdoms. And, and there's the story of the, the lion's den and, and the one this morning about the fiery furnace. And, and we can see kind of that while they're in Babylon, Daniel and his friends are really loyal to God and his kingdom. And so when they're there, they're trying to figure out where we fit in. Are, are we part of this culture or are we still part of our original, you know, are we part of the people of God? And, and which stuff do we give in and go along with where we are? And which stuff do we need to kind of fight the man and, and, and resist against the power of the empire? And so we have all these stories about Daniel and his friends with the pressures of being squeezed into the value system of the reigning empire. Because that was their goal, to squeeze them into their system and, and make them value and, uh, what, what the empire values and to see things the way the empire sees them and, and to take on their values and what they like and what they think is important and what they think is good and true. So they're well treated and they were, weren't tortured or abused. And they were part of this new culture where they were given the best of what the king's table had, but they weren't free. And they couldn't go home. And they couldn't live in the old way, the way that they would like to. Daniel was trapped in kind of a luxury prison where he had all the trappings of blessings and success and stuff. But he couldn't do what he wanted and he couldn't be free. And he couldn't live the way that he was called to live. Money, job, material blessings, being blessed is something that we kind of take for granted in North America. We go, we have stuff and, and not many of us miss meals and, and we have things and, and, and objects and, and we've got all the trappings. But do you ever feel trapped like Daniel did? So how does Daniel make sense of the situation he's in? They were God's people. He was a faithful believer. He'd always been blessed. But where is God when he's getting dragged away to a foreign land? Where is God? And what is God doing? And, and what's he supposed to do when he's being pushed into this mold of having to live like those people and, and look at the world the way they look at it? And he's, he, they're trying to educate him and change him and, and get him to like what is their likes and, and value what's their values. And look at the world through Babylonian eyes. And so the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are kind of those stories about Daniel and his friends fitting into the new Babylonian way of life. And trying to figure out where they fit in the empire. And then in chapter 7 we get this really strange vision. And, and so Daniel sees this churning sea and... 
and, and things are just in chaos. And, and, and in, in Israelite culture, in ancient cultures, they looked at the sea as kind of this place, not just of chaos like, you know, people die at sea when they ship out, but, but there was this sense that it, it had this mystery to it. And, and a lot of their myths and their religions would look at the sea as this scary place where the gods were involved in doing bad things and they didn't know what was going to happen if you went to sea. And so it was a scary place of, of mythical beasts and, and, and things like that. And, and, and so when Daniel sees this, uh, and when he recounts his vision, people would have identified, yeah, that, is really, that sounds really horrible. It sounds really scary. That image would have been terrifying to them as well as Daniel. And so there's the sea with all its chaos. And then these four really weird beasts come up out of the sea. First, it's a lion with uh, eagle's wings huge and powerful, but also just strange, right? And the strangeness is kind of in, in counter to what Daniel was always taught, that, that God had created the world and, and he created every animal after its own kind, like there was an order to it. And animals stayed in their categories. And here's these hybrid beasts that, that kind of defy natural order. It's kind of a thumb in the nose to the God of creation uh, that we read about in scripture. And, and so there's this lion with eagle's wings and then there's a bear and and he's the closest thing to a normal beast but he's got three ribs in his mouth and he's just huge it says and hulking then the third beast is is a leopard but with four birds wings and four heads and just strange and powerful and the fourth one's the weirdest of all they, they don't even compare it to any kind of earthly beast. They just say a beast, and, and they describe it as having iron teeth and, and bronze claws, and it bites and devours, and <clears throat> it's just massive and scary. So where, what, where were they supposed to be, and what were they supposed to be doing? Like, like what, what's going on with Daniel? And, and Daniel feels this scary scene, and he's, he's out of sorts, and he has this weird, weird dream vision at night when he's sleeping and he's like, it's just strange and it's scary and, and he's terrified by it. It's just the sea and the chaos and the, and the strange beasts and how violent they are. And Daniel feels out of sorts. He's not where he wants to be. He's not where he began his life. He's in a strange place with strange people, with strange values, things that they think are important that he's not been raised that way and their strange religions and their strange ideas and what was Daniel supposed to do he doesn't really have choices and he doesn't have freedom and how do they understand where God is in all of this and what God's doing and what they should be doing and they live with this pressure and this fear and this anxiety of of his place in the world and and why am I here and why do I have to deal with this you ever feel like you can relate to that? I mean, it's not just Christians in, in uh, China or Indonesia or Iran or Iraq. You know, it's not just them that, that live in fear of losing their freedoms. But sometimes for us as Christians, we feel this pressure living our lives. Even in normal times, it's like that, isn't it? 
where we feel the pressures of the values of the world around us. And as Christians, we're kind of trying to sort out, how do I look at the world that's different than maybe some of the people that I run into? And, and how do I go about my business of being me and, and valuing what I value when there's all kinds of voices around me that, that contradict that and fight that and, and pressure me and the anxiety of, of where do I fit in in this world and, and, and what's my value system and how should it be different because I worship the God of heaven? And sometimes we can feel like the, really like the minority in the world, right? And so there's this pressure to conform to the ways and the values of the people around us and the system and the empire that's ruling now. And we can wonder and be scared at the situation. And I think that's one thing that our current situation kind of heightens in a completely different way, but, but we walk around kind of afraid of things and afraid of what's going to happen next and afraid of the decisions that are be being made for us and afraid of losing our freedoms in one way or another. And so our fear, our anxiety of our position in the world and the things that are outside of our control press in on us and squeeze us and mold us and try to shape us and, and we have to figure out which ways we should fit in and which ways we should fight back. And then in the vision, it, it, it moves to a different scene and it moves away from the churning sea and the beasts and, and, and next comes a courtroom. And in the courtroom, we have this figure, the Ancient of Days, and he's got white hair and, and the whitest of white robes and he's sitting on this throne of fire with wheels of fire and and the white hair uh, in, in Israelite culture would have, un, would have been understood as wisdom, you know, from white hair. And white robe was righteousness. And, uh, and you know, being pure and, and the fire is the power of judgment. So we get this figure, the ancient of days, this one who's uh, wise and righteous and powerful. And it says in my vision that night... He sees this ancient of days in a courtroom set up. And, and in the courtroom, there's all kinds of uh, people kind of bowing down to this ancient of days. And he's got the control. He's the guy. He's the God who steps into that situation. And he's in the courtroom. And then before him, it says, in my vision continued that night, I saw someone who looked like a man. A son of man riding the clouds. And this son of man steps into this situation. And, uh, and he's different. He, he comes and uh, he approaches the ancient one and was led into his presence. And he's given authority and honor and royal power over all the nations of the world. So that people of every race and nation and, the la and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It'll never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Authority, honor, royal power. And so Daniel's vision kind of takes this sharp turn. And, and what does it mean? And what difference uh, does this son of man make? And, and what does that mean for us? Now, if you've go, been going to church very long... You understand that uh, the Son of Man is a phrase that Jesus often used of himself. 
And so Jesus would say, the son of man, and, and he'd talk about things, and, and he was talking about himself, how he went about things, how he did things, what he valued. And he'd say what needed to happen to him, and it was all the son of man. And the Israelites, as they began to put together the picture, as some of these prophecies and these little nuggets kind of in, in, in different writings came up, they, they started to see this picture evolve of this Messiah, this hero that was sent from God. And all the details of who Jesus is and was and what he would look like when he came to earth wasn't all in the one prophecy, but there are clues. And what we see in this in Daniel's vision is that this Messiah, he steps into the chaos. Like he enters the scene where there's darkness and, and the churning sea and the beasts and the, the chaos that Daniel's feeling in his life. The, the feeling of the pressure of the empire, the push of the value systems that are different than his that are trying to squeeze him into their mold and make him what they want him to be and what everybody should be in their view. And Daniel's trying to stand up for himself and try to stand up for the kingdom of God. And he's trying to figure out how to do it. And this Messiah in his vision stands up in the middle of that situation. And he rides in on clouds and he's given authority and honor and power. He comes into the scene and his presence makes a difference about how things are going. Now, to understand not just the symbols of this vision, but to understand that, that the kind of writing they are is completely different than the first six chapters. Like the first six chapters of Daniel are story, they're narrative. They're just stories about Daniel's life. But then when it comes to the visions, they're written in what's called an apocalyptic style. Most famous in the Bible is, is the book of Revelation. In fact, the word revelation... It, it's actually the original translation is apocalypse, and it's like, but, but when we call it revelation, because that's what apocalypse means. It means the unveiling, the, the tearing back the curtain, right? Showing what's really going on. And apocalyptic writings with all these scary beasts and everything and, and the churning sea, all of these symbols, these scary symbols and this strangeness, they would have been symbols that the people who were oppressed in the world, the people of God, when they were feeling oppressed and like the world was pushing in on them, these kind of writings emerged to kind of encourage them. And the reason there were strange symbols is because sometimes it had to be kind of hidden and, and it was kind of this insider language, this insider style. It'd be like you and I trying to understand some rap songs, right? And going, what are they even talking about? The lingo was kind of insider lingo. The images were their insider images. You can go to different styles of music and find that. You can find different styles of art and poetry. And, and you've got to study them a little more and, and learn a little bit about that culture and how they express themselves. But in their culture, this was a way of expressing these ideas. And so apocalyptic literature like Revelation, like, like the, this, this part of the book of Daniel, they're written to the oppressed people of God to encourage them. 
And so they use these symbols, but they'd always have this kind of message that said, look, it, it looks really dire, and it looks like the forces that are against you are bigger than the forces that are for you, but don't lose heart. Like, like, like hang on to your hope. God's going to step in, and he has the ultimate rule here. And so it would have been a welcome message for those people oppressed and, and the young people like Daniel that say, I, I really still want to be faithful to God, but how do I do that? We don't have any power here. Like these guys are squeezing us and trying to make us their, their kind of people, and, and I don't know how to push back. Like we, we don't have the military might. We, we can't fight our way home. We can't resist them. Like how, how is it we're going to push back against all of these forces trying to squeeze us and make us something that we're not and we don't feel like we're supposed to be? And so the book, the vision is sent to Daniel for him and for everyone he would share it with to encourage them, to give them hope, to say God is going to do something about this situation. And God sends this person, this son of man. And so the Israelites would have welcomed that message. And, and we'll find as the, as the prophecies come together that God is planning to send a hero. And, and it doesn't say everything about him, but it tells us some things, that God is going to step in, that God shows up, that God isn't absent from our world. And that's the thing that we celebrate at Christmas, right? That Jesus came, he showed up, he moved into the neighborhood, and he made a difference in our world. He walked around like where we walk around. And he did stuff that made a difference in the world. And because we can look at him and the way that he lived, we can learn something about how to really live. But the picture wasn't complete and there were things that they missed. Because when Jesus walked around and he referred to him as a son of himself as the son of man, he was emphasizing his humanity. Now, if you or I were walking around and, and we were God and we were man and we were walking around the earth, we'd go, you know I'm God, right? We might walk in with the power and try to go, listen, I'm in charge here. You need to listen. Uh, and we might throw our, our weight around. We might try to exercise our power and our authority. And, and that's what they expected. They, they expected a Messiah to come in. And if he's got royal power... <coughs> If he's got the power of God and, and if he's got the authority over the universe, he'll come in and he'll set things right. Nobody will be able to do bad things while he's around. And so they picked up on the part where he's given the authority of heaven from God, but they didn't pick up the part where he's referred to as a son of man. And when Jesus came, he didn't come in riding on a white horse with with weapons and armies, and he didn't ride in with military might and say, you guys better smarten up or else. He didn't come threatening, and he didn't come pushing his weight around, but he comes, and he's humble, and he's 
He's the picture of humanity. And he emphasizes that. He doesn't go around kind of letting word leak out about his divinity and his divine power. He, he, he does things in small ways. And he often tells people when he does a miracle and, and, and he shows his power, he says, don't tell anybody about that. And he keeps referring to himself as the son of man. He could say, I'm the son of God. That's true about him. But that's not how he refers to himself. He emphasizes that he's a human being. And that's true about him too. But he chooses that side to emphasize. And when you, if, if you close your eyes and picture those beasts, they're massive. They're, they're looming. You, if you ran into one of them, like, you'd be scared. You'd be terrified like Daniel. If you even saw it in a vision at night, you'd wake up probably with the sweats and go, that was really freaking me out. They were big and they were looming and they were powerful, especially that last beast, like iron teeth, claws of bronze. I'm... And yet, the being that is sent with authority, he's a human, just a son of man, just a regular human being he looks like. He doesn't look imposing. He doesn't look like he's more powerful. He looks like if he has to duke it out with those four beasts, he's not going to make it. But you never underestimate the kingdom of God or the power of heaven. It looks outmanned and outgunned and small. And no match for the forces of evil that push in on us. And Daniel sees the vision and he rightly kind of comes away terrified. And he turns to the being that's standing beside the throne and he says, explain this to me. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. He says, look, the beasts represent four kingdoms. But he says those kingdoms are, are no match he says, I was troubled by all I'd seen and my visions terrified me. So I approached one of those standing beside the throne and asked him what it all meant. And he explained it to me like this. These four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will rule forever and ever. And they aren't explained how. And they don't see all the details. And we could try to pine over the, the minutia of, of which kingdoms they represent. People thought maybe it was uh, four kingdoms that they knew. They speculated about who the kingdoms were and But it doesn't really matter whether it's, you know, Persia and Media and, and whether it was Greece and, and, uh, and any of those kingdoms. It doesn't matter that those powers and those forces in the world and, and what the horns represent and the three being rooted out and what, what that's all about. It doesn't really matter in one sense. The being that explains it to Daniel doesn't tell him what it specifically means. He just goes, it's four kingdoms. They're the powerful forces of our world, but you should know they don't get the last word. 
and they aren't the enduring power, and they look scarier, and they look more powerful, but don't let it fool you. God and his kingdom rule, and he will hand that off to his people, and they will rule that kingdom forever and ever. So this picture starts to emerge of a Messiah, a hero. And they look at the powerful part and they, and they look for other signs of that and they would pick up clues upon clues about what he would be like. But Daniel's vision makes clear that he shows up. And he doesn't look like a match for what he's facing against but that he is more powerful and that he has more authority and that he is the one that has the final word and that he and his kingdom will rule forever. Let's pray together. God, uh, we live in a world where there are all kinds of forces around us, all kinds of voices uh, that push agendas that are different than your agenda. We face the pressure to become things that we know uh, conflict with your kingdom. And they work on us in subtle and not so subtle ways sometimes. And the empire seems powerful. The, the forces of squeezing us. We, we, if we spend even a few minutes on Facebook, we feel the pressure of different points of view that tolerate, a, are intolerant of anybody who thinks differently. And sometimes we realize that we have all the trappings of material blessings, but we don't feel free to be ourselves. We don't feel free uh, to just live our lives, but we feel pressure to be things that instinctively we know conflict with who you made us to be. And God, we are tempted sometimes to feel that we are just outmanned and that those things are bigger and more powerful and that there's nothing we can do to resist the way the world works and the realities around us. And sometimes we feel the pressure of it squeezing us into its mold and trying to change us and make us something that we know we shouldn't be. We feel the pressure of our empires, and yet... We hear the words of these, this vision of Daniel's, this apocalypse, this tearing back of the curtain. And it helps us to see the world differently. And even though the Son of Man looks small and diminutive next to those scary big beasts, we know the truth that your kingdom is more powerful and that your authority is more far-reaching that even in our most scary circumstances, when we feel the pressures of the world, that your kingdom is powerfully working in us and it looks not as imposing. But Father, we just ask you not to let us underestimate the power of your kingdom working in us when we allow it to do what it wants to do. Help us if no one else recognizes the power of the Son of Man to see who he is and what he is and to follow him and to be part of his kingdom rather than the kingdoms around us. 
We pray in the name of the one who came as a baby in a manger, born in a barn, king of the universe. Help us to see him for what he is and to recognize his coming in ways that are difficult to see. We pray in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.